2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Anthony Badger about his book, Albert Gore Sr., A Political Life. Tony, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Mark.
2: It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Well, I'm British, uh, and I grew up in the late 1950s, early 1960s, went to university in the 1960s, um and wanted to do american history as a as a graduate study um because in when i was growing up in bristol uh, in england uh, my father had a book on his shelves called america came my way which was a bit book written by an an english baronet in the 1930s who did a sort of grand tour of the united states starting with walter winchell in new york uh, and ending up with shirley temple in hollywood and he had a series of introductions. Uh, I, I always remember one chapter, uh, and that chapter was called Huey Long Takes His Shirt Off, um, which was an interview with the senator from Louisiana, based on an interview with the senator from Louisiana in uh, 1935. Uh, what r- struck in my mind as a 12 year old reading that in Britain was a little asterisk about, uh, next to the uh, chapter heading which pointed out that, of course, this interview took place before Senator Long was assassinated. In 1959, um, people didn't get assassinated in the way that they did later. Uh, and that always stuck in my mind. And when I went, was a student in Cambridge in the mid-1960s, uh, I was going to do an American history course. Uh, Bill Luchtenberg's book on the New Deal had just come out. And I read this as a, my first serious book in American history and then discovered this man, Huey Long, who I uh, stayed in my mind um, was actually an important figure, and I got very interested in that sort of colorful southern politics, which seemed so much more interesting uh, than rather gray british politics <laughs> well, <And> then, well, <laughs> and it was true it was clear that that was a feeling many Britons had in the 1930s <laughs> when, they were, when they were making that comparison and uh, and it remained true to the present day
2: uh, that uh, that uh background in, in uh the politics of the american south i think is really infuses your book it's because you you talk about this figure Albert Gore senior in, in that context of what was going on in the region in the country in that post-war period what was it that led you to focus upon uh, Albert Gore senior for a biography
1: well in the first instance uh i was a, a new deal historian who happened to be studying the south Uh, I wrote a book on the tobacco program, of the New Deal, in North Carolina in the 1930s. Um, But then I was teaching the South, uh, and and students were getting very much more interested in what I was saying about the 20th century South and about civil rights than they were uh, in the, the general background or in what I was saying about the New Deal. So what I was looking for was a topic that would combine my interest in the New Deal South. Uh, and race relations in the in the later period, and so I became interested in what happened to all those young Southerners. Roosevelt described them as a new generation of Southerners um, who were growing up in the South, and he had a, he had confidence that they would produce a different type of Southern leadership uh, than had been provided by the more conservative Southerners traditionally. And I wanted to know what those Southern liberal New Dealers some of whom I'd studied in my book on tobacco, uh, what would they do after the war um, when race would come to the centre for of of their interests? Because in the 1930s, a New Deal Southern liberal could basically ignore the issue of race. Um, Segregation wasn't under challenge. The New Deal wasn't directly challenging uh, disfranchisement or segregation. Um, And so it was easy to combine a faith in the federal government and The faith in what the South was, uh, Roosevelt was doing, what the New Deal was doing, combine that um, with staying in the Democratic Party, and so when I was looking around for a topic, uh, I got interested in the the Southern Manifesto of 1956, a blast of defiance at the Supreme Court, and in particular, how did liberals uh, who had been, uh, you know, who were in the Senate, in the Congress, in the House, how did they cope with that? What they had to do. Uh, whether they were going to sign this blast of defiance, uh, or whether they were going to defy, apparently defy their constituents. And so I got interested in the three Southern senators who didn't sign the Southern Manifesto, Lyndon Johnson, uh, Albert Gore, and Estes Kefaufer. And it happened that a a number of the signers in the House, the people who didn't sign rather in the House, uh, were people I'd been familiar with in the 1930s in North Carolina. So it was that was what I was interested in. Southern Manifesto. So I got interested in Albert Gore, um, and I happened to be in Tennessee in 1990, uh, and I went to look at the Albert Gore papers at Murfreesboro, and I was travelling back to England from there, and, and the archivist very kindly said, "Well, why don't you call in on the Gores?" Uh, <laughs> in and I thought, "Well, they won't want to see me." And he said, "Well, they will." So I rang. Uh, he rang the, the Gores for me. And uh, I was put on to Pauline Gore, Albert's wife. Albert was out, she said, Um, but uh, he will want to see you. So um, I I followed that instruction and then drove to the the Gore's house in Carthage and met both Pauline uh, and Albert. Uh, And so I I became particularly interested in Albert, but still wasn't going to write a biography of him. I was focused very much on the Southern Manifesto. And then in 2000, uh, 2000, in the year 2000, I was asked uh, whether I would consider writing a biography of Albert Gore because the uh, Middle Tennessee State University had received a challenge grant to fund such a biography. Uh, And I said I would be interested. And then I didn't hear anything more for a year. Well, there was a reason for that because uh, the choice of biographer had to be at least run past the vice president. And as you will remember, Vice President Gore was... Uh, rather busy <laughs> in, in 2000, and so when when he was just about to leave office, actually uh, his his office signed off on the signed off on the biography, and so that's how I came to to do two things which I had anticipated. I had anticipated writing a biography first of all because uh, I was rather sceptical about the value of biographies, and secondly, I was uh, uh, not anticipating writing a biography of Al Gore, and and I was very pleased and privileged that I got the chance to do
2: that. It's a, a very interesting uh, book from a variety of perspectives, and one of the ones is the one that you've just described, which is uh, Albert Gore's position on on race, and that's something that I'd like to return to in a bit. But I, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about who Albert Gore was, in, and 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 what was what were his uh, origins? You know, what was his family like, and and what were his early years like? Well, he came from a very isolated uh, rural part of Tennessee in the hill country.
1: Um, and grew up on a small farm, small subsistence farm. Uh, And one of the things that I think uh, I became more and more aware of and became more and more aware of the importance of was that he was like a whole generation of uh, important United States politicians who grew up in what was essentially the horse and buggy age. Um, And they went on in time. I mean, you can go around the Senate, uh, the Senate of the 1950s and 60s, and find people who were, grew, grew up between 1890 and uh, 1910 in the in rural small town areas in the South and the West. Um, as I said, in this very often very isolated, if you like, backward parts of the country, and yet they went on to to lead America into um, fighting in World War II, uh, leading it to a, a, the position of a global superpower, uh, controlling atomic energy. Um, sorting out modern aviation, sorting out a road system for the united states um, bringing um, you know america into the into very much into the 21st century and into the role it has today and and, and I just thought it was interesting how the people like Gore move from that very parochial background to um, such a position of, of prominence as a as a, an ambitious young man um very anxious to sort of, as it were, get on and get out of the isolated hill country. Um, he, was, uh, he, he, went, he went to university, but uh, but not to the university, the prestigious University of Tennessee, um, but to a t- basically a teacher training college. And he worked rather than like Lyndon Johnson. He worked his way through college. Uh, he would do a semester uh, at Murfreesboro and then go home, um, either grow tobacco or, or work um, as a salesman, um, and then go back and and, and complete his degree. Uh, He got the chance to be uh, the county superintendent for education, and he was progressive reforming uh, uh, education administrator at a time when local, there were powerful modernizing forces in the Tennessee school system. Uh, So he, he he began to establish something of a local political reputation. Uh, He was taken up by some state politicians. He was made uh, by Gordon Browning, made him commissioner of labor. And then suddenly a vacancy occurred in in Congress in his home district. Uh, And so he ran ran for office. And one has to remember that he ran for office at a time when this was very much patronage oriented politics within a one party democratic system. That is, there were in that primary election there were a lot of candidates, most of whom it was very difficult to establish any clear policy differences between them, uh, and somehow you had to stand out. Now, Gore was a great stump speaker. Tom Wicker used to say that uh, the New York Times journalist used to say that he was the best stump speaker that he'd ever heard. But even a stump speaker didn't necessarily attract people's attention, and as he campaigned right through his district. Uh, campaigning every day uh, in little small crossroads across the across all the counties in a very large district uh, he needed some way to uh, attract a crowd how do you, how do you attract a crowd well he was a fiddler and so he had a group of country musicians who went with him and every and during his uh, campaign stops he would uh, he would pull out his fiddle uh, and uh, and entertain and entertain the crowd <laughs> uh, with all his local connections, that's how he got elected to Congress.
2: It's interesting reading your description of Gore as a politician because you describe that he has these many strengths, such as as you just mentioned his uh, stump speaking. You describe him as as being you know very intellectual, very dedicated. But you also mentioned that in in many ways the the true repository of genuine political skill in, in, in the in the household is his wife, Pauline. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain a bit about you know his marriage to her and how she helped to uh, shape and develop his political career, especially early on
1: well, I mean they met because uh, Albert was attempting to be uh, to train as a lawyer while he was also um Uh, being uh, the commissioner of education for for Smith County. Uh, And he would travel up, he went to law school, uh, a night law school in Nashville. And he would drive up and uh, it was a fair drive in those days across the sorts of uh, two-way roads that they had uh, in Tennessee in the 1930s. Um, He would get up to to Nashville, he would do his classes. And then before going home, he would go into the local YMCA uh, and get a cup of coffee. And uh, he got to know the waitress there. Uh, And the waitress was also working her way through uh, law school, but this time Vanderbilt Law School. Uh, And Pauline Gore was one of the first women to graduate in law uh, from Vanderbilt. Uh, And she um, never really got the chance to practice law. She did initially in Arkansas. Um, And then then later on briefly, after Albert um, was defeated, They practiced together in Washington. Um, But there was no doubting her intellectual pedigree and her intellectual ability. But she was also a natural politician. Uh, She knew uh, if you went into a room, uh, it was Pauline who who knew everybody in the room and would guide Albert to the right people, who always remembered the names, who had this uh, encyclopedic knowledge of local contacts. And it used to be said uh, in Tennessee that in the Gore family, Uh, That is, the two natural politicians were Pauline Gore and her daughter, Nancy. Uh, And they were much more natural politicians than the two politicians, that is, Albert uh, and Al. Um, And so Pauline was very, they were always a team, political team. She would stand in for him on the campaign trail. Um, She was uh, heavily involved in, in, in Washington um, in in studying policy and networking, um, and and she she also uh, was a fair, she used to say that she was much more hard headed than Albert, uh, and that she uh, tried to present pr- pr- tried to she said he got f- much further uh, with with my practical advice than he did on his high fluting oratory. Uh, <laughs> And and he was also, he, you know, I tried to persuade him, not always successfully, she said, to avoid butting his head against the stone in a futile cause. Well, Albert got into a few of those, but um, on the whole, it was Pauline who was persuading him all the time to be more realistic. Uh, Al remembers what a privilege it was to grow up in Washington in the 1950s and the 1960s, um, and every morning at breakfast, Listen to two, as he said, two of the best political operators in Washington
2: discuss current policy and, the, and current politics. Hmm. So as you described, Albert uh, Gore gets elected to the House of Representatives in 1938 and uh, he ends up serving in the House for uh, 14 years. What was uh, that service like and, and, and how is he regarded by his peers and, and what did he accomplish during that time?
1: Well, he was always regarded uh, from, the, I think, from very early point. He was taken under his wing, uh, partly by Sam Rabin, uh, the speaker, the, the legendary uh, eventually speaker of the, the House, Democratic speaker of the House. And he, he went to Washington alongside Wilbur Mills, later the powerful uh, ways and means chairman, and Mike Monroney, later senator from Oklahoma. And they were clearly seen as three coming young men. He often was quite independent in his early days, and he was often quite conservative in his time in Washington. Um, but uh, he was a devoted follower of Cordell Hull, who by then was Secretary of State, and he came from uh, Carthage, Tennessee, and, and Albert—that was Albert's home as well—and um, so he was picked out by the administration basically to be a supporter. Of the uh, interventionist policies of the Roosevelt administration in the in the lead up to war, Uh, and whether that was on repeal of the Neutrality Acts or on lend-lease, Albert became a a a spokesman for interventionism, and and he 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 learned. Uh, I think the thing I would say about his time in in in, um, in Washington as a congressman was that he learned and developed. I mean, he learned. Uh, by by his battles in in World War Two on behalf of price controls, price and wage controls, in which he was aligned with on the one hand people like John Kenneth Galbraith and the Office of Price Administration, and on the other hand wise old timers like Bernard Baruch, um, he became he devoted he studied up the subject and became a, a leading spokesman for a more comprehensive price and control regime to combat inflation. Um, but he became a, he became a real internationalist in terms of developing um, uh, an, a post war international organisation. He became one of the main spokesmen uh, for the United Nations, um, and he and he learned very much about atomic energy because he was intimately involved with uh, the success of the Tennessee Valley Authority, and the Tennessee Valley Authority, of course, became and linked to also to the nuclear facility at Oak Ridge. Uh, they became. He became very interested in the whole question of, of atomic energy, um, both in terms of how it could be used uh, in war. Because he, in his early days, he was really quite enthusiastic for uh, tactical use of nuclear weapons, uh, and he talked about the opportunities from that. And he also, during the, he wanted, a, he thought he could break the stalemate in the Korean War by creating a dehumanized, radiated radiological belt across the middle of Korea um, as a way of, uh, of, of ending that sort of uh, meat grinder of a war. Um, but he also saw the potential peaceful use of atomic energy and was very interested in developing that. And Later on, would be very interested in uh, nuclear testing and the banning
2: of uh, atmospheric nuclear tests. The rise that you described. Uh, scribe that just uh, now it not necessarily meteoric but it was, he, he was definitely a, an emerging force and yet in 1952 he undertakes a uh, a political decision that is really uh, uh in, in, in one sense, very, very breathtakingly ambitious and, 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 and you know, not necessarily one that, that is guaranteed to succeed in which he challenges uh, his state senior senator, Kenneth McKellar. I was wondering if you could perhaps describe uh, a, a bit about Kenneth McKellar and, and why challenging him was such a uh, big step for Gore and how it was that he succeeded in that challenge in that election.
1: Uh, well, McKellar was one of those veteran senators who had been re-elected year after year. He was a close ally of Boss Crump, who was the sort of chief political operator in Tennessee, the boss of the boss of Memphis. Um, and McKellar was a, an old-fashioned patronage politician. Uh, he'd been in Washington for years. There were few families in Tennessee who didn't have a family member who owed something to to McKellar, and that was his prime. Um, his prime calling card as a, as a politician, he had this network of loyalties throughout the state. But he was getting old, uh, and there was a lot of speculation that he wasn't going to run again in 1952. Uh, and I think when, when Gore first considered running for the Senate in '52, I think he, he thought that McKellar might not be running uh, and that it would be an open seat. Um, but when, when it became clear that And and Boss Crump, indeed, himself, Boss Crump was quite keen for McKellar not to run in 1952 because he thought McKellar could be beaten. There were new forces in Tennessee politics that Crump had experienced already in 1948 when Estes Kefagfa, another Southern liberal, had been elected to the Senate over the usual conservative candidates. So um, it was said there was real doubt that McKellar would run, but McKellar was determined uh, to run and resisted all the blandishments uh, from Crump and his allies to stand down. Uh, and what Gore did was to simply run an extraordinarily vigorous campaign. He was campaigning for basically two years, uh, and he never turned down any opportunity to speak in Tennessee. And his 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 week for about two years was virtually going down on a Friday night, to Tennessee speaking uh, all day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, going back to Washington. Um, and then, having weeks where he would spend in the state, uh, and he would hit seven or eight speaking engagements during the day um, and it was simply a massively vigorous campaign against McKellar. Uh and he was promising um to in a sense to 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 reconstruct the infrastructure of Tennessee. He wanted to make Tennessee the nuclear capital of the nation. he was campaigning as an internationalist uh, he was campaigning uh, as a as a new dealer. Um, a New Deal liberal. Um, and in all these areas, he was
2: he was just making his own case rather than attacking McKellar. So he uh, makes that he makes this, undertakes this vigorous campaign. It, it, it contrasts with McKellar, who sort of is your, your very classic pork barrel politician, the man who is, you know, is 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 known by even the people with uh with 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 senility as as the senator and, and yet in the end albert Gore beats him and, and, and it really is remarkable in in how you said that context is that it really does seem to be this transition point in, in tennessee when you're talking about uh you know crumps organizations fading you describe the new generation of, of of veterans who are uh who, who want to do something a bit more uh you know less less uh You know, corrupt, less involved in 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 that sort of that old school dealing, and much more about these principles and and running for these high ideals. And and Gore really does seem to embody that, doesn't he?
1: Yes, and uh, and he's able to steer clear of civil rights, Uh, and he's he manages to avoid being smeared on the on the red issue, which was always a a, a danger in Southern politics at that time. And and as you're rightly to say about a new generation of politics, because at the same time that Gore got elected to the to the Senate in 52 uh, Frank Clement uh, representing a rather different set of politics in, in political organizations Clement was a was part of the crump organization but he was a young attractive uh, again great speaker um, running uh, against uh, incumbent governor Gordon Browning so that they, they they really were capturing as you say capturing a ta- transition period uh, a handover to a new generation of of politicians, and I said before the before the race issue really
2: started to hot up in Tennessee. So Gore succeeds in defeating McKellar in the Democratic primary, which, as you know, at that time was tantamount to winning the election. And then he begins what becomes three terms in the United States Senate. I was wondering if you could perhaps describe some of the early issues he addressed and how he really made a very significant uh, legislative mark early on in his career. Well,
1: I think. Uh, Ultimately, I mean, he's making his mark as uh, as an infrastructure politician. Um, I mean, like like all sort of Southern liberals from the from the 1930s, uh, they were what John Sparkman of Alabama described as TVA liberals. They could see what the TVA had done in in transforming a, a, a region, uh, or potential for the TVA to transform a region, and they really believed that you could. Um, whether it was water resource development, uh, diversified agriculture, uh, new industrial development. This is what could trans- This is what could modernize uh, the South. This is what Lyndon Johnson was thinking in, ten- in, in, in uh, Texas. It's what Lister Hill and John Spartan were thinking in Alabama. And it's what Albert Gore was thinking in Tennessee. So uh, Albert Gore was always concerned to defend the TVA. And during the Eisenhower years, there were a number of issues where they really thought that the Eisenhower administration was maybe even trying to privatise the TVA, um, but certainly restrict its operations. Uh, and particularly, there was a big controversy, uh, the so-called Dixon-Yates controversy, um, about, uh, uh, about the, uh, the uh, TVA withdrawing from the production of public cheap electricity uh, for cities like Memphis. And so Gore makes his name in that area. Uh, he makes his name on atomic energy because um, one of the things that he, he's in the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy, and one of the things that he wants to do is to make sure that, uh, that the United States fully exploits the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Uh, and he really believes that the, 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 he looks around the world and he looks at what's happening in Japan and Britain, and he sees their government-sponsored research and development and uh, the development of atomic energy. Uh, and he believes that that's what, ha- what happened in the United States. But uh, the Atomic Energy Commission under, the, under the, in the Eisenhower administration was determined not to go down that route. Um, mm-hmm. Gore manages to part, get a bill passed Congress uh, in 1956 with Lyndon Johnson's help, Pass the Senate at least, for the uh, public development of atomic energy uh, and uh, public public construction of nuclear reactors. Um, but it doesn't get any further than that. But the real uh, contribution he makes, of course, is in his sponsorship of the interstate highway system, which is, in a sense, really the last great New Deal infrastructure measure, a uh, public works measure. Um, it's something that Roosevelt had been, uh, would have loved to have got in the nineteen forties, in particular, during the war. It's uh, so what he had ambitions to see. Um, while I mean, the road, the road system was in. Great crisis in the United States in the 1940s and 1950s, and the combination of the Gore on the one hand wanting to see a road system, modernized road system in the South, uh, and Eisenhower who wanted to see a modernized road system for economic prosperity and for um, national civil defense, Um, then uh, you know Gore becomes the Senate sponsor of the of the Interstate Highway Act of 1956, and Al Gore always remembers that. uh, that pointed out to me that how important an interstate highway system was to a, a state in the long run to a state like Nashville, it's a t- state like Tennessee. If you looked at Nashville, the state capital, uh, and you see the intersection of these major interstates, national interstates, uh, and, and Nashville becomes, in a sense, a, a commercial hub for uh, the nation. It, it's no coincidence that you know FedEx has its major headquarters in Tennessee, uh, so many car plants begin to locate in that area around uh, around Nashville. Uh, it has a transformative effect on the South, um, as indeed, of course, it has on the nation. Um, but that's what that's what I think I would associate Gore most with um, during those those early years in the Senate.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And it's also interesting, and, and this was something of a revelation for me reading it in your book, was that how his stature was such that he was a plausible contender for the vice presidency back in 1956.
1: Yeah. They used to say in Tennessee that, that every man in every man in America can run for the president. Uh, and in Tennessee, they all are because <laughs> Tennessee had, th- had three candidates for the vice presidency uh, in 1956, Estes Kefalfa, who had been defeated by Stevenson for the presidential bid. Um, uh, Frank Clement, the governor, uh, and Albert Gore. Frank Clement was the keynoter at the 1956 Chicago convention, and at that convention, Stevenson opened up uh, the vice presidential nomination to the floor. He didn't choose a vice president, and there you have this. Uh, this for a moment, Albert Gore, I think, really thought he had a chance of getting the vice presidency, um, and in the end, he had to he had to concede. That uh, if he if he allowed John Kennedy to win the vice presidency in 1956, Kennedy was the other, one of the other candidates, and and as a result, Estes Kefauver was defeated. He would be he would face real p- political retribution in Tennessee. So in the end, um, Gore released his forces to support Kefauver, and that put Kefauver uh, took the victory away from Kennedy and put Kefauver in the vice
2: presidential
1: nominee
2: seat. It's uh, interesting to, I mean, you uh, say in your book that that's pretty much the closest that, that Albert Gore ever got to being president, but you also describe how in 1960 when he's ha- when he's uh, having a meal with uh, with uh, his family and, and Robert Novak is a guest and he sort of blurts out to, uh, to uh, Novak during this uh, lunch that they're having that, you know, what, what has Kennedy got that that, that I haven't got? Is, you can tell is kind of Praying in the back of his mind for years afterward, this idea that maybe he could be president too. Of course, that set up so many senators, though.
1: <laughs> well, it set up so many senators, and, and Gore is, is fairly self deprecating about uh, about how he you know he got the bug, um, but he, he knew he didn't have a chance in nineteen sixty, um, and he brought all the Tennessee, all the major candidates to Tennessee, uh, and he liked Kennedy. Um, but he bought all of it, you know. But he, when he looked around, and he, of course they were all senators there. it was Kennedy and Symington and Lyndon Johnson, um, and uh, he, I think he he rightly thought that well they, they don't really don't have anything that I don't have. Um, but he was realistic, and 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 he was a, a good friend of Kennedy's, um, and, and remained so. Uh, so uh, he he wasn't disappointed in 1960. But I think I I think there's no doubt in my mind that in the long run, he still maintained some hope that he might still be the first southern president because Kennedy was going to serve two terms. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was neutralized once he became vice president. Uh, And in 1968, you know, who knows? um, The first southern senator could be Albert Gore. Um, Well, of course, there was an assassination and there was Lyndon Johnson. Um, and that uh, that that ended any hope that Gore ever had of becoming uh, president of the United States.
2: It's also during this period, as well, when Gore is beginning to confront more directly the issue of of civil rights and and it it, in your examination of it is is really fascinating because you're describing you mentioned already the southern manifesto and 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 how gore is one of the three senators in 1957 to sign it and 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 i've read in a few accounts of of the period about how this was a, a testament to Gore's liberalism. And yet what you described is a much more nuanced position, one that had to take into consideration the fact that Tennessee was not a liberal bastion in the South in, in, in the 1950s and 1960s. And and how Gore's position as well, which was, as you explained, is a sincere one, is one that, that nonetheless you know reflects as well a, a sense of how he was not necessarily a committed civil rights activist in, in the way that we might think of somebody like, say, Hubert Humphrey.
1: And so certainly not. And uh, and he was not as as by any means as publicly committed and uh, identified with civil rights as Estes Kefauver, uh, his fellow senator, was. I mean, Kefauver had run for national office. Kefauver had to have a liberal stance on on civil rights, uh, and, and and I'm sure it was a, it was a genuine one. Um, Gore had much less sense of the the power of the civil rights issue, uh, um what I've tried to say in, in the book is that one of the reasons for that is that, that Gore got Afri- African-Americans were voting in Tennessee um, by the mid-1950s in sizable numbers. Twenty five percent of the of the bl- black voting age population was registered to vote. And Gore would have got their support in 1952, as did uh, as Kvalfa did throughout his political career. Um, but you campaigned for the black vote at a distance. Uh, you know, you campaign campaign through intermediaries. You didn't necessarily go into the black community and campaign directly. You had black uh, leaders in the black community, sometimes called racial diplomats, um, who you would deal with, and and they would satisfy themselves that you were a liberal on this issue, uh, and would deliver the African American vote. The result of that is that uh, Gore t- did take courageous stands on, on on civil rights as a matter of principle, a sense of fairness. He was particularly uh, keen on the right of African Americans to vote, he regarded that if you know, he regarded that if African Americans could give their lives to the country, they should be able to to vote. Um, but he was shielded from the, what I've said in the book is he shielded from the impatience of African Americans. Um, he was a gradualist. Uh, he had no great desire to throw off the shackles of segregation as such. Uh, He just anticipated, like so many Southern liberals did, gradual racial change as a result of economic modernization. Um, And so in the 1960s, that would be a much harder balancing act to to pursue because by then, um, whites were no longer dictating the timetable of racial change. Most of the controversies over civil rights in the South in the 1950s were controversies within the white community about what the white Community should do about school desegregation. Court, court ordered school desegregation. Uh, they were not responding necessarily to African American protests. When, when African Americans protest directly in the 1960s, it's a different
2: ballgame. You also described the, uh, his uh, relationship to the various legislation about how, in 1957, with Lyndon Johnson's majority leader. Gore is able to take certain uh, votes and positions that allow him when he's running for re-election the following year to pre- prevent sort of a, a nuanced opinion that doesn't confront African-Americans directly. By 1964, you're talking about the Civil Rights Act of 64, following year you have the Voting Rights Act, and, and it becomes a, – a, it, it, it's, it's much less uh, – it, it, it's, it's no longer as easy to develop that nuance, especially as the two sides are getting polarized.
1: Yeah, uh, in fifty-seven and nineteen sixty, where the two civil rights acts of fifty-seven and nineteen sixty are both engineered, you know, both guided through by Johnson in the Senate, um, Gore knew that there were going to be compromises to prevent Southern filibustering, and and so he could he could he could sort of bask behind the sorts of compromises that were made, uh, and and defend his votes in Tennessee on the grounds that he was voting for something. Uh, that was a lot less uh, coercive than the original demands. Um, In 1964, when when Kennedy introduced civil rights legislation in 63, I think Gore thought the same process might occur, um, that he would be able to see the bill softened, and as a result he would be able to go back home and say, well, we softened the bill, and and therefore I was able to vote for it. Um, As soon as Johnson became president, uh, in the circumstances that he did, uh, and and Johnson knowing that he had to get full scale, he had to he had to commit himself absolutely to the Civil Rights Act in sixty-four. There were no no compromises. He needed to he couldn't Johnson couldn't afford to compromise for two reasons. He couldn't afford to compromise because he had to appear as a liberal to win over the liberals in the Democratic Party, um, who had been suspicious of him. But he also had to he he knew that the Republicans uh, who'd been burnt before by de- when dealing with Lyndon Johnson on civil rights? He needed their support, and he needed to persuade the Southerners that he was going to go for it all. As a result, there was no no need to soften the bill, and there was no need to do the, make the sorts of gestures that Albert Gore would have been able to 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 get behind. And so, in the end, and I, I don't think we fully a, a articulated. What, why John uh, Why Gaul voted against the 64 Act. Other Southern moderates made the same sort of move. They voted. Uh, they hadn't signed the Southern Manifesto. They voted 457 and 60. They voted against 64, but they would come round 65 uh, to
2: support the Voting Rights Act. That. D- decision though to in to vote for the voting rights act uh gore's you know position becomes much more starkly apparent and alienates some of his uh, constituents but as you describe uh, he, he then also has soon on top of that another issue which really turns a lot of his constituents against him which is vietnam i was wondering if you could perhaps go a bit into gore's uh role in in, in foreign policy generally in, in in the senate and before delving a bit more deeply into Vietnam and, and and how Gore's you know how Gore really emerges as a prominent spokesperson against the war.
1: Gore was a committed internationalist and he was a committed Cold Warrior, um, and he was committed supporter of containment, indeed of global containment. So all of those things um, you know put him in the in the line in which uh, one 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 line from that would be to support policy uh, uh, the policy in Vietnam. Um, but the Gore had had reasons uh, to doubt it. Um, first of all, in Korea, he had been very alarmed by the prospect of this sort of eternal war of attrition in Korea, which he regarded as futile when you had the Chinese on the other side. Um, he got alarmed uh, at the prospect of uh, the United States getting involved in Vietnam in 1954 when the French demanded requested assistance. Uh, and he was part of the team advising Johnson uh, to 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 make sure that the United States didn't get committed uh, in, in in 1954. Um, but he he went to uh, Vietnam in 1959 on as a mission with Gail McGee of Wyoming uh, for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, ostensibly to look at uh, international the the operation of uh, the aid program uh, in Vietnam. And he came away pretty convinced that the Diem regime uh, was an increasingly authoritarian regime and was not, was not popular. Um, and if you put, add into that the sorts of reports that were coming out of, uh, of Vietnam in the early 1960s from David Halberstam, the New York Times correspondent, um, who was piercing the, the sort of propaganda that was being put out by the, the military and the government about the success of uh, uh, American advisers uh, in, in the counterinsurgency war in Vietnam. He clearly, Gore's own experience in Vietnam, the fact that he knew Halberstam, being a reporter on the Tennessee, and um, he trusted what Halberstam was saying. Um, all of these things made him deeply sceptical about uh, getting involved in Vietnam. As a result, in August 1963, he went to see Kennedy uh, and uh, he advised Kennedy that he should withdraw from Vietnam, and Kennedy wasn't in a position to take that advice in '63. But Gore always believed that if Kennedy had been um, uh, had survived and been elected in, in re-elected in '64, that Gore would have withdrawn. Uh, that Kennedy would have withdrawn from Vietnam. Um, so, so Gore was deeply sceptical um, about about Vietnam from the start. Uh, he did have, however, like almost everybody else in the senate signed uh support the tonkin gulf resolution uh, in the summer of 1964 where Lyndon johnson got his sort of a, sort of mandate from the senate for retaliatory action retaliatory military action in, in in vietnam um and he said when i when i talked to him in 1990 he said yeah uh, he said uh, you know um whenever you went to see johnson johnson would pull the tonkin gulf resolution out of his pocket and say you guys voted for this uh, and disarm their try and disarm their criticism that way, um, but Gore in 1964 was prepared to support Tonkin Gulf partly because he was up for re-election in Tennessee, and and partly because of the strength of Goldwater in the in the, in the South and in Tennessee, um, and partly because he I think he genuinely regarded and for a long time actually 64 good part of 65 as well he regarded um, Johnson as a force for restraint. Against the military, he, you know, Gore was deeply suspicious that the military were really pushing for a purely military solution in Vietnam and victory, uh, and he didn't believe that was possible. But he saw Johnson as, as, as indeed Johnson was in many ways, a force for restraint in those in that early period. Uh, in December '64, Gore is already call, calling for a negotiated settlement, and really from then on, he is a he is a very public skeptic about the Vietnam War and, of course, from the, the televised hearings in the start of 1966. Uh, he's very much in lockstep with Fulbright uh, on, on on the war and opposition to
2: it. And politically, that's very courageous on a number of levels because, for one thing, he's uh, he's facing the ire of the President of the United States. Uh, he is taking a position that is very much one at odds with many of his constituents. And, and, and I, I love the, the, the material that you quote and you have a photograph of, 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 a, of an endorsement letter from a union and the union member is just, you know, venting on the page about how he's not going to vote for Gore because of this. And, and, and he doesn't have that, 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 uh, that. Uh, advantage that Fulbright had of having been, you know, a supporter of segregation, therefore didn't have to worry about having already, you know, soured his his uh, vote, the the voters of his state upon him. So he's taking a stance that that he knows is is going to really be politically problematic, and gets more so as it goes along. And yet he never really wavers from it after sixty five.
1: No, and he of course he becomes increasingly. I mean, you get this this disconnect. He becomes increasingly popular. Uh, in the north and in the, amongst northern liberals. Uh, his reputation nationally uh, uh, couldn't, gets higher and higher, particularly during the early years of the Nixon administration. And at the same time, he is in real political trouble at home, a very isolated figure uh, in the state. Uh, and he never had, had never really developed his own political organization, uh, and that will come back to, to haunt him in the late 1970s. Um, but it, what it, what's happening is that he's, he's 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 got a worldview, by the way. Well, he has a worldview um, uh, 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 that is increasingly at odds with the, that of his constituents. The 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 and the the issue that really brings it home um, is when Nixon nominates um, two Southerners to the Supreme Court as part of his uh, Southern strategy, and he nominates uh, two strict constructionists to the Supreme Court: Clement Haynesworth and Harold Carswell. Uh, and Gore is really put on the spot on those votes. Um, he, he Gore, on the one hand, is a believer in the president having the right to nominate people who he wants uh, to, to to major offices. Um, but he becomes increasingly, as under a lot of pressure from Northern liberals, to uh, Ted Kennedy and uh, Birch Bay and people like that, to to uh, f- fight against Hainsworth. Uh, in particular, um, and Gore is really, uh, Gore keeps his ha- hands, uh, his cards very close to his chest. No one really knows until the last minute which way he's going to go on that vote. And he votes against Ainsworth's nomination and then later he votes against Tarswell's nomination. Ted Kennedy told me that he thought they were two of the really great, courageous acts uh, of a senator. Um, and that confirmed to to many in the state that he was listening far too much to the forces of the Eastern liberal establishment and not enough to people in Tennessee. Um, and because those issues that were now getting wrapped up, not merely the question of civil rights and Vietnam, but of course with the Supreme Court, you were thinking about uh, law and order and you were thinking about prayer in the schools and other other decisions of the law that the Supreme Court had taken in the 1960s. So the question, the battle for the Supreme Court uh, was Carrick had a, had a weight in Tennessee
2: that it has... In many parts of the to, of the nation uh, today. So, how does all this catalyze in 1970 to result in Albert Gore's defeat? Who who's, who runs against him, and and how is all of this exploited to turn out Albert Gore?
1: Well, he's 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 opposed, and one must always remember that, that Republicanism in Tennessee was was steadily growing in strength. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, there had always been a strong, a minority, but strong Republican presence in the state through the the sort of as we were the Mountain Republicans of eastern Tennessee. Um, And there'd always been two, always two and sometimes three uh, Republican congressmen in the eastern part of the state. Um, But in the 1960s, those those are joined by uh, many um, migrants to the state by young businessmen who, and sometimes young servicemen coming back and and, and thinking that the old-style courthouse politics of the Democrats is something that really ought to be cast over, and then by the ideological thrust of uh, of the business conservatism of people like uh, Barry Goldwater and the Republican Party. And uh, the standard-bearer for the party in that way, Howard Baker in 1966 had been elected to the Senate uh, as a Republican, But he represented very much the sort of moderate republicanism of eastern Tennessee. Uh, William Brock in 1970 uh, was a pro-Nixon congressman, um, very uh, pro-Goldwater, strong conservative. um, And uh, he was mounting a very well-financed campaign supported by the Nixon administration um, and, and hammering away on these these new issues, hammering away, hammering away on bussing, uh, that is the forced bussing of school children to implement school desegregation, hammering away on gun control, hammering away on the war, hammering away on the Supreme Court nominations. Uh, and these issues, these were issues in which it, it, was, it was possible to see Gore standing on one side and, and a large number of Tennessee voters standing on the other as uh, said, something of a different worldview um, about uh, the role of the federal government and about the role of traditional forms of, of race relations.
2: It's in many ways, I, I, I found reading the, that section of your book a very, uh, you know, it's, it's almost a precursor to so many of the elections that are going to follow in, in the South end of the country in the, in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, down to the present day. And, and yet it, it, I also found it was remarkable that, you know, given you know, where Gore was by 1970, given what was arrayed against him, that he ended up doing as well as he did in the end. Well, yes. And of course, he
1: ran, he ran a disorganized but extremely active campaign. Um, once he finally sort of freed himself from Washington and came back to the state and campaigned vigorously, which he I mean, he was a, he was a great campaigner in the old fashioned way. And of course, in, in 1970, he had powerful he had some very well crafted uh, TV ads. Uh, produced by the, the filmmaker who had created films, uh, campaign films for the, for the Kennedys. Um, so he had that going for him. He had a lot of traditional democratic support, uh, and he had the African-American support was now pretty uh, wholehearted, whereas it had been equivocal back in 19, uh, 1964. So he had he had that going for it. And, of course, you know, Tennessee was still a democratic state in terms of state legislature for <laughs> so lots of local politicians who might have not been all that happy with Gore, were nevertheless, you know, going to vote vote the Democratic ticket. Uh, But it was a a formidable race. uh, And um, it was the injection of prayer in the school late in the campaign, school prayer as an issue, which really, I think, took Gore by surprise. Um, And I was very struck by this way. The campaign against Ralph Yarborough in, in Texas earlier in that year and then against Gore in 1970 um, were, were issues where school prayer, was for the first time successfully in Senate elections, was used as an issue. Um, and for people of Gore's generation, uh, religion, and this is where it's so different from today, uh, for people of Gore's generation, uh, religion was really a private affair. I mean, Gore was a Baptist, strict believer in, in, in church and state. He wasn't terribly... Uh, He wasn't publicly religious in any particular way. And as one scholar said once, there's been a sort of religious truce in the United States from Al Al Smith's campaign in 1928, where the Catholic issue was so prominent, um, to the 1970s. There was sort of, you know, public religiosity was not what the nation was about and what what politics was not about. Uh, School prayer put religion straight back, right in the centre. And I think Gore found that a very difficult issue deal with is one that almost came to him from left field, uh, and he found it very difficult to. And, and certainly, people in the Gore campaign felt that they could, they could they could feel on the phones and at the doorstep they could feel the issue floating away from them uh, in the in the later stage when school prayer got injected into the to the campaign with the slogan that Albert Gore had voted against prayer in the school three times uh, was the, the the slogan that brought and his campaign team were using. I should, say, I should say that I should say that Block himself, uh, when he was ta- I was talking to him, uh, was never in any doubt that he was going to win in,
2: in nineteen seventy. <laughs> <laughs> so you you have uh, Albert Gore who. Uh, is, you know, turned out of office in many ways at, at, the, at the height of his powers. At the, at, at, you know, he's, he has this national profile. What does he then do with the uh, rest of his life, publicly speaking? What, what is, does he, uh, you know, try to mount a, a career back in, into politics or does he redirect his energies?
1: Well, he, he redirects his energies um, in, in two ways, I think. The I mean, first is in uh, uh, he makes money. Um, uh, he, I mean, Gore was a populist, but Gore was also—I mean, populists were never anti-capitalist. And Gore was, in a sense, something of a restless entrepreneur. He'd always had a, a cattle cattle feed business um, in Tennessee. He'd always breed, bred bred you know, purebred cattle. Um, that had led him to links with uh, Arm and Hammer of Occidental. Um, so Albert Gore, like so many people in Washington, sets up as a, a as a lawyer. In so many defe- defeated. Senate candidates, uh, sets up as a lawyer lawyer in Washington uh, and soon becomes, uh, uh, one of his clients becomes Iron Hammer uh, and uh, the Island Creek Coal Company. And Gore finds himself very soon as chairman of that company. Uh, And uh, he becomes, uh, for many years, uh, the executive chairman of of Island Creek uh, and then the sort of honorary uh, chairman and president. Um, and and he's he makes no bones about the fact that he he makes the money uh, then that he had never been able to make while he was a while he was a senator, um, and so he 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 orientates his his uh, energies in a sense for in, into into that business. And when I talked to him in 1990, actually he was very happy to talk about civil rights and talk about Vietnam and all those sorts of issues. Um, but he was also very keen to talk about uh, negotiating. One to one with the Chinese leadership and with Ceausescu in Romania about contracts for island Creek. Um, so he, he he took to that with a with with a vengeance. Uh, the second way, of course, that he that he um, uh, spent his time in a sense or dedicated his energies was in support of his son, um, uh, who of course got elected uh, to Congress in 1976 from Gore's old house seat, uh, and then later to the to the Senate, and then campaigning for the presidency in 1988 and for the vice presidency in 1992. And, and Gore, uh, Gore didn't, um, wasn't very much involved in Albert Al's first campaign in 1976. In fact, he was kept at a certain arm's length from that campaign. Um, but he was always willing to campaign for Al. And, he, and as Pauline said, he used to be in Seventh Heaven. Uh, all you had to do is to, to send him off to campaign uh, whether it was uh, in, for the Senate races or in the presidential campaign in 1988, you'd um, send him off, and uh, uh, and he, would, he nothing nothing pleased him more, and he had tremendous pride in what what Howell was doing, even though they they had quite
2: significant differences in emphasis uh, and uh, on on issues like the environment. It's interesting to think about the degree to which, as I was reading those pages, about how enthusiastic his his father was. You describe how. Uh, when when Al Gore was running for uh, the presidency, in nineteen eighty eight, about how you describe him, how he's getting off the stage, and and his father goes, you know, this boy is going to be president of the United States. And it, it, It's almost as though that that the real enthusiasm is is is, is much more evident with with, with Albert Gore than it is with his son Al.
1: Yeah, he has a very different. Um, uh, he, he he's he, he's he's a very vivid campaigner, as I uh, said in the in the old style, um, and he was tireless. I um, mean, you know he went all around Iowa in 1988. Or the uh, the Gore campaign decided they didn't really want to go down that route. Um, they uh, one of the uh, Al's friends remembers him. Uh, the remembers him being stuck in an airport trying to get back from one of the primary campaigns. Uh, and while uh, uh, while they, they try to rest and get some food, Al was uh, Albert went round the round the whole uh, airport you know, shaking hands and introducing himself and, Telling them to the, the people that they ought to support Al, so he had a he had a he did have a real enthusiasm, but but Al himself was a a, a fine campaigner in, in 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 again in his own right.
2: We've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yes, I've um, I, I've just given the Huggins lectures the Nathan Huggins lectures uh, at, at Harvard. Uh, uh, on the subject, it's probably the last thing that I shall ever say on Southern liberals and race, uh, and it's called white, why, "Why White Liberals Fail: uh, Southern Politicians and Race, 1933 to 2018," um, and that uh, I've got to write that up into a book for Harvard University Press next year. And I have a, a long-standing commitment to Harper Collins to produce a general book uh, on going back to my old, old, older interests on America for a series, the series, their sort of national history series, uh, and I'm taking the years 1920 to 1945.
2: So I have to produce that fairly soon as well. Well, those both sound like excellent projects, so don't let me hold you up a minute longer. Uh, <laughs> Tony Badger, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Mark.